0: Thank you for that introduction, Mata. I uh, greatly appreciate it. And let me start by expressing my gratitude uh, to President De Di- DiGiorgio and Dean Michael for inviting me here to give this talk. I'm very pleased with the turnout here tonight, especially in view of the fact that I've learned that the Rolling Stones are playing tomorrow night in Charlotte. But I guess given the relative ticket prices, I probably shouldn't be surprised, right? Early next year we will experience an event that happens very rarely in the Federal Reserve System, the retirement of the chairman of the Board of Governors. Alan Greenspan is just the fifth Fed chairman in the modern era that begins with the Treasury Fed Accord in 1951. And his retirement provides us with an excellent opportunity, both to look back at a period of extraordinary success in policymaking and to look forward to the principles that might allow us uh, to continue this success in the future. I plan to do some of both tonight, but I may spend as much time looking back as looking forward, not because I'm particularly nostalgic for the 1990s, but because I think it's important for us to understand the nature of our policy successes in order to draw the right lessons uh, to guide our future thinking about policy. As always, the views expressed are my own and do not necessarily represent the views of my colleagues in the Federal Reserve System, particularly the chairman. First and foremost, the success of monetary policy, how do we measure that? The success of monetary policy in the Greenspan era is evident in the behavior of inflation. The stability of inflation is our primary responsibility as a central bank. While under Greenspan's predecessor, Chairman Paul Volcker, the Fed brought inflation down from double-digit levels, uh, the period since 1987, when the chairman took office, has seen inflation fall from an average of over 4.5% per year in the late 1980s to about 2.5%, near 2% in recent years, as measured by the CPI. <coughs> Perhaps just as important Inflation and inflation expectations, expectations about future inflation, have become more stable since then as well. Declining inflation does not seem to have come at the cost of slower growth or higher unemployment. The economy experienced two mild recessions during that period, and they came on either end of the longest expansion in our nation's history. Moreover, This has been a period during which there have been a number of real and financial shocks that might have been expected to derail economic growth. In fact, real economic growth seems to have been substantially less variable since the 1980s, a development that several writers, including former Fed Governor Ben Bernanke, have termed the Great Moderation. Of course, not all this bountiful good fortune is attributable to good monetary policy. For example, the 1990s saw a renewal of strong productivity growth, largely due to the emergence of significant new information and communications technologies, and fiscal policy moved in a favorable direction in that decade as well. But monetary policy has certainly played an important role, and Chairman Greenspan's leadership of the Fed during this period has been widely and in my view justifiably praised for contributing to superior economic performance. Together with the praise, a fair amount of recent comment has focused on the reasons for this success. At the end of a policymaker's term in office, it's natural to look back and appraise the conduct of policy during their tenure. And this task is considerably more pleasant in this case because the results have been so favorable. One distinguishing characteristic of Fed policy under Chairman Greenspan that has been identified by some observers is flexibility, which they describe as a practical approach to policy that is not excessively tied to any one doctrine or any narrowly prescriptive approach to the conduct of policy. In this view, the hallmark of monetary policy in the Greenspan years has been the careful analysis of the state of the economy, taking account of whatever is special about the current situation, and then choosing an action that's appropriate for that situation. These observers see the flexibility of the Greenspan Fed as contrasting with an adherence to a monetary policy rule, that word rule is very important here, or adoption of a numerical inflation target for performance. Now, this observation by these commentators calls to mind the economics literature Uh, that's referred to by the phrase rules versus discretion in policymaking. This line of research was recognized by the award of last year's Nobel Prize in Economics to Professors Finn Kidlin and Edward Prescott. In the late 1970s, they demonstrated that a central bank that sets policy on a discretionary basis each meeting, focusing solely on current and prospective economic conditions, generally will not deliver the best possible policy. In particular, they showed that a central bank taking such a discretionary approach will be tempted at times to ease policy, to boost employment and output, despite the risk of higher inflation. The anticipation that policymakers will behave this way in the future will drive up current inflation. The general problem here is that the behavior of market participants today depends crucially on how they expect the central bank to set policy in the future. This feature of our economy makes monetary policy conceptually different from, say, driving a car, because the current behavior of the car doesn't depend on what it expects the driver to do in the future, only what the driver's doing now. Professors Kidlin and Prescott showed that as a result of this feature of the the economy, the policymaker would do better if they could commit to a pattern of behavior that avoids the temptation to ease policy at the expense of inflation. That is, by choosing now how they will conduct policy in the future and convincing market participants that they will do so, policymakers can improve on the results of choosing policy on a period-by-period basis. To put it more concretely, A central bank can achieve better outcomes today by convincing markets that they will avoid inflationary temptations in the future. And this is why central banks have come to focus so heavily on inflation expectations and to react so strongly when those expectations seem in danger of becoming unstable. To achieve superior outcomes, however, the central bank's promise has to be believable. That is to say, it has to be credible. One way to do so, to make their promise credible, is for the central bank to explicitly commit to a formula that determines the target level of the federal funds rate as an arithmetic function of a few macroeconomic variables, such as inflation and unemployment. The now famous Taylor Rule, at least it's famous in central banking circles, is um, which makes the policy interest rate a linear function of the, the output gap, the gap between actual output and potential gap output, and the deviation of inflation from a target rate of inflation, that Taylor rule is one such simple arithmetic uh, formula. And if you, you choose the parameters wisely and commit to that and follow through, you can stabilize inflation. But the benefits of policy credibility can be achieved without a mechanical arithmetical formula as long as the central bank adheres to a consistent, predictable pattern of behavior that the public understands. The term rules, I told you to pay attention to that word before. The term rules, in the sense used by Professors Kidlin and Prescott in their work, is best understood in this broader sense of a consistent, well-understood pattern of policymaking. Arithmetic rules, little linear functions, are one way to achieve that, but not the only way. What is essential is a consistent pattern of behavior the public understands and believes will actually describe the central bank's future behavior. Clearly, if the central bank wants the public to continue to believe that it will stick to a pattern of behavior in the future, it must actually follow through on that behavior as events unfold. This idea of following through is the key to the true distinction between a discretionary policy and what I'll call a rule-like policymaker. Having worked to guide the public's expectations about future policy, a rule-like policymaker sees actions that would disappoint those expectations as undesirable and to be avoided. That is, a rule-like policymaker seeks to preserve its reputation as reflected in the public's expectations. In contrast, a discretionary policymaker focuses solely on current and future economic conditions it ignores previous expectations of market participants concerning the policymakers' current behavior. To identify discretionary policy setting in the Kidlin and Prescott sense as the hallmark of the Federal Reserve under Chairman Greenspan is, in my view, to seriously misconstrue the historical record. It is true that Greenspan has voiced doubts about the desirability of conducting policy according to quote and I'm quoting Chairman Greenspan here, the prescriptions of a formal policy rule, unquote. But in that statement, he was clearly referring to the arithmetic rules of the type I described earlier, which represent only one of many, many representations of commitment. The Federal Reserve has worked hard over the years to shape the public's expectations regarding the conduct of monetary policy. Central to those efforts has been the pursuit of what many call credibility. I used that word earlier. That is to say, a reputation for pursuing low and stable inflation. And to my mind, building monetary policy credibility has been the true hallmark of the Federal Reserve under Chairman Greenspan's leadership. The Fed's credibility has been built through a number of channels. First, of course, has been the actual behavior of inflation. Having brought down inflation to a low and steady rate over the last two and a half decades, people expect us to keep it there. Equally important, the Fed has responded forcefully when signs emerge that the public's faith in our commitment may be slipping. In the famous episode of 1994, for example, interest rates on long-term bonds rose markedly, indicating that inflation expectations were rising. The Fed responded preemptively by raising the federal funds rate target in seven steps from 3% to 6% even though inflation itself had not yet begun to rise. A discretionary policymaker, in the sense I've used that term, would have been less likely to raise raise rates preemptively. Communication is another important tool in building and maintaining credibility. In the early 1990s, the Fed's monetary policy reports to Congress, we submit these twice a year, and public statements by Chairman Greenspan and other Fed officials repeatedly emphasized the importance of reducing inflation and keeping it low. More broadly, during Greenspan's tenure, the Fed has become far more transparent about its policy actions. First, by, in, by actually taking the step of announcing its federal funds rate target decisions immediately after making them, beginning in 1994 and then by gradually expanding the substantive content of the statement that accompanies those announcements. Recent statements have gone further and have provided further information regarding likely actions at upcoming meetings. Together with statements by FOMC participants in the public, statements like this, these moves towards greater transparency serve to enhance the public's understanding of how the Fed is likely to respond to economic conditions as they unfold over time. In other words, to help the public form expectations that are consistent with our intended future behavior. Now, for a speech with the words, after Greenspan in the title, I've done a lot of talking about during Greenspan. So, let me now turn to talk about the future. At the outset, I noted that the Fed's success in bringing inflation down during Chairman Greenspan's tenure, To the point where we can be said to have achieved price stability, uh, a situation in which core inflation and inflation expectations are low and stable. I want to spend the, the rest of my time discussing some of the consequences of price stability. To facilitate the discussion here today, I'd like to ask you to suppose that the Fed continues its recent success in maintaining stable inflation expectations on the part of the public. I believe we will continue to be successful, and I have in a speech earlier this year expressed my belief that adopting an explicit numerical inflation target would be helpful in this regard. But for the purposes of our discussion here today, I want us to take as a premise that inflation and expected inflation remain low and steady and ask, how should we, the Federal Reserve, conduct interest rate policy in such a world? And that's going to be my interpretation of the after-Greenspan world. Now, first, let me remind you, conceptual point here, that any interest rate, uh, and I'm thinking here particularly of interest rate on government securities, whether it's an overnight rate uh, that the FOMC essentially sets, or the yield on a long-term treasury bond, can be broken up into three parts. One is simply compensation for expected changes in the purchasing power of money. uh, Expected inflation, in other words. Second part is a premium to compensate lenders for the risk that inflation might turn out differently than expected. The remainder is what finance economists, and economists more broadly, call the real interest rate. It's essentially an inflation-adjusted, risk-free rate of return, a rate of return stated in the units of real resources over time. Now, I'll explain this a little more in a bit. Now, if the public is convinced that the central bank will not allow inflation to move persistently outside of some low target range, then expected inflation will not move around much. And the inflation compensation that financial markets build in to longer-term interest rates, that won't fluctuate much either. Moreover, inflation risk premiums won't fluctuate much either, since inflation is low and steady. Now, in the past, the Fed has often had to raise the Fed funds rate in response to rising inflation or rising inflation expectations. And at times, the Fed's raised rates preemptively when long-term interest rates indicated rising expectations, inflation expectations, as in 1994, even if actual inflation itself was stable. But neither of these triggers would occur in the world that I'm asking you to imagine, where inflation and expected inflation remain low and stable. Does this mean the Fed would never have to change interest rates if inflation was fully stabilized? And the answer is an emphatic no. I'm going to explain why right now. The reason stems from the fact that with a stable expected inflation, nominal interest rates move one for one with real interest rates. Expected inflation, that little risk premium, The real rate add up to nominal rates. When nominal rates go up, that means it's an increase in the real rate with expected inflation and that inflation risk premium constant. It also stems from the fact that real interest rates need to fluctuate in a healthy, well-functioning economy. Let me explain this a little bit. A real interest rate, as I stated earlier, is a rate of return expressed in units of real resources. In other words, it represents the amount of real goods and services that you have to give up in the future, say a year from now, in addition to repayment of principal, of course, in order to obtain a given quantity of goods and services today. So, for example, uh, 2% real interest rate means you have to give up 2% more goods and services a year from now in order to, give up, to get a given unit of real resources today. In a market economy, relative prices of all sorts generally fluctuate in, responses, in response to shifts in, in supply and demand. For example, when the demand for crude oil grows relative to supply, as we've seen over the last couple of years, the price of oil needs to increase relative to the prices of other goods and services in order to reflect the increased scarcity of oil. Similarly, the price, the relative price of current and future resources should fluctuate in response to shocks that affect the demand for and supply of current resources relative to future resources. I'll come back to this. I'll use this idea as we go forward. So I'm going to illustrate this with, I'm going to start with an example, you might say ripped from today's headlines. Two successive hurricanes have caused devastation and really heartbreaking losses in the central Gulf Coast region in the last two months. In economic terms, A natural disaster that destroys or damages residential and business capital represents a temporary disruption to productive capacity. Fewer goods and services are available for current consumption and investment. Setting aside for the moment energy price increases, I'll come back to them, history shows that our economy rebounds pretty strongly from hurricane damage and other events of that sort. After several quarters of rebuilding, our productive capacity should be about where it otherwise would have been. So a disaster like this makes current resources scarcer relative to future resources, at least scarcer than they were. In addition, there's going to be a heightened demand for reconstruction resources, and that places further strains on current capacity. So for both reasons, you would expect the real interest rate on this account to be, if anything, higher than it otherwise would be in the short run in order to reflect the relative scarcity of current resources relative to future resources, and to help adjust demand to the disaster-induced reduction in current capacity. Now, the only, the only caveat to this um, little story I've told is the possibility of an offsetting reduction in demand. So the question is, what would cause such a demand effect? A catastrophic event can certainly affect the public's mood. We saw that after 9-11, and we saw that in other instances as well. The public's mood, for example, is sometimes captured by consumer confidence indexes, these telephone surveys people do. But consumers and producers can also be expected to understand from the history of such events that the disturbance to economic activity is likely to be relatively short-lived. With that understanding, and the prospects for rising output and income in the not-too-distant future, there's little reason to expect a significant reduction in the current demand for resources by households and firms. And indeed, that's what we've been seeing in the aftermath of these hurricanes in the last month or two. To take another example uh, from today's headlines, and one to which I've already referred, Oil price increases can be expected to have implications for real interest rates. Many economists are fond of noting that oil price increases act like a tax on the production and consumption of oil-related products. Since energy is an important input to most production, oil price increases can also be thought of as adverse productivity shocks. That is to say, they make us all less productive, especially in sectors that use oil energy resources in particular. As energy prices rise and producers cut back on their use of energy resources, the productivity of other inputs, labor and capital, essentially declines. If the increase is expected to be temporary, its effects are analogous, exactly, to the disaster-induced reduction in productive capacity that I just explained before. It makes current production more costly relative to future production. An increase in real interest rates would be warranted in this case, again, to reflect the relative scarcity of current and future resources. Now, energy prices figured prominently in the economic events of the 1970s when sharp oil price increases were associated with rising inflation and subsequent recessions. But you need to be careful to avoid drawing the wrong lessons. Inflation was high and variable in the 1970s. Inflation expectations were untethered, and the credibility of monetary policy in that time period was quite low. Oil price increases engendered expectations of increased inflation across a broad range of goods. And the Fed initially accommodated the pickup of inflation by failing to increase nominal interest rates, the nominal short-term interest rates that it controlled, by as much as the increase in inflation. Thus, the Fed ultimately <clears throat> the result was a falling real interest rate and further monetary policy stimulus which just exacerbated the situation. Now, the Fed then ultimately had to tighten policy in an effort to combat the acceleration of inflation that resulted and that thereby we induced economic contractions. And that's the reason for the association in the data record between oil price increases, inflation, and recessions. The proper lesson from the 1970s is not that energy price shocks induce major recessions; They don't have to. It is that a monetary policy that reacts to the energy price shocks by accommodating the rise in inflation and then subsequently has to fight inflation can induce major recessions. Thus, sharp energy price increases are not by themselves reason to ease policy. The proper central bank to energy price increases is to remain focused on maintaining price stability. Productivity trends seldom make the headlines, so I'm not ripping this one from a headline. But sustained changes in productivity growth have figured prominently in recent macroeconomic uh, history, and they can have important consequences for interest rate policy. The U.S. economy experienced a productivity slowdown from the mid-1970s through the early 1990s. Growth in output per worker hour went from about 2.5% per year before 1974 down to about 1.5%. In the mid-1990s, productivity growth accelerated back to about 2.5%. Most observers linked the increase in productivity growth in the late 1990s to advances in information and communication technology. When a sustained increase in productivity comes to be widely recognized by households and firms, the effect is to increase the demand for current resources relative to supply. So let's think this through. Because gains in labor productivity ultimately show up in real income, households experience a productivity surge as a pickup in real income growth, and they'll tend to extrapolate Uh, the brighter real income prospects into the future. Higher corporate profits will raise equity values as well, further boosting consumers' real wealth. Households are going to try and spend some of that anticipated income gains in the present. On the business side, the pickup in productivity, growth usually implies stronger returns to installing productive capacity, providing a boost to business investment spending. If real rates don't change, a step up in productivity growth would raise current demand by more than it raised current supply. And thus, real interest rates have to rise in that situation. Forces exactly like these uh, put upward pressure on interest rates in the late 1990s. Now, the three examples I provided for you here tonight have all required real interest rates to rise. I don't want you to think I'm biased in favor of rising interest rates although I know most people think of central bankers that way. For an example in which real interest rates must fall, um, you can just run the productivity pickup in reverse. A sustained fall in productivity growth should lead to lower real interest rates. Everything else equal, I'll leave the exercise for the reader. Another example of conditions that could indicate declining real interest rates is an independent fall in investment spending. Now this is different from my other examples because a change in investment spending reduces the demand for current resources rather than the supply. For example, the investment boom of the late 1990s came to an abrupt stop around 2000, especially in the telecommunications industry, where it became clear that the growth in installed capital stock was outstripping the growth in demand for the industry services. The slowdown in capital spending in some sectors amounted to a reduction in the demand for current resources relative to supply and thus warranted a reduction in real interest rates. The f one facilitated uh, this decline by cutting the federal funds rate sharply in 2001 from 6.5% to 2% ultimately. By considering a world of perfect and complete credibility, I hope to have convinced you That there's more to monetary policy than just responding to movements in inflation or to inflation scarce or to quote, emerging inflation pressures unquote. As important as doing so really is, real shocks that alter the relative balance of current and future resource utilization will require appropriate adjustments to real interest rates over the time, over time. In a world of stable inflation expectations, the responsibility for facilitating these adjustments is going to fall to the central bank. Now, it's not too hard to find examples in the past when the Fed's response to shocks have been different from what I described here as appropriate. But it's important to remember that no past experience perfectly matches the hypothetical world I'm describing in which inflation expectations have been perfectly stabilized So if you think the Fed is likely to build on its recent success and maintain low inflation and inflation expectations, and I do, then past history, drawn from times when credibility was lacking, will be a very poor guide to future economic performance. So I'm coming to the punchline here. What will interest rate policy look like in an after-Greenspan world in which the Fed continues to build on its recent success at convincing the public of its commitment to price stability? Policy will less often be reacting to fluctuations in actual or expected inflation because these will occur less often and will more often be realigning real interest rates in response to changing economic fundamentals. The Fed will have to constantly monitor the state of the economy, understand the shocks that are affecting the economy's growth, and form an assessment of the appropriate implications for real interest rates. In other words, not that different From recent Fed policy. It's important to remember that even as our understanding of economics and the economy continues to improve, models, uh, the artificial economies we build to try and understand uh, our real economies, will never be perfect. Assessments of economic conditions and associated forecasts are always going to be subject to substantial uncertainty. This may be one reason why these rule-like policymaking, Uh, may never take the form of the simple arithmetic formulas uh, that are so handy for research purposes that I referred to before. Rather, both our understanding of the economy and our assessment of appropriate policy actions are likely to continue to evolve and be influenced by emerging data and trends. I should be clear, however, that moving towards such robust credibility will take continual vigilance, uh, central bankers' favorite word. Credibility regarding our general intentions is often less in question than how we will respond to various contingencies. Markets may have a firm idea that in general the Fed favors low inflation, but they may not be sure how we will react in every conceivable circumstance. Somewhat unique circumstances may arise in which market participants harbor some uncertainty about whether the Fed would be willing to tolerate the sustained increase in inflation. Financial market responses following Hurricane Katrina are a worrisome case in point. This means that the Fed's credibility, while quite strong now, might never be entirely unassailable. To preserve and build on the credibility we already enjoy, we will need to continue to respond to changing economic conditions in a way that confirms our commitment to low inflation. Key to this will be helping the public understand that we intend to respond to future conditions in a way that keeps inflation low and stable. Now, I've argued that the conduct of monetary policy under Chairman Alan Greenspan is best described as rule-like. One possible pitfall of rule-like behavior that relies on a central bank's desire to preserve its reputation is that reputations can be associated with individual leadership, as opposed to the institution itself. You might ask, is the Federal Reserve in danger of losing its hard-won reputation with the upcoming change in leadership? As you might expect, I don't think so. I anticipate a stable transition with no sharp departure in the actual conduct of policy. And this stability should quickly become apparent to the public. This observation I just made in no way diminishes my assessment of and appreciation for the accomplishments of Chairman Greenspan. My confidence in the institutional continuity in the conduct of monetary policy rests in large part on what we have learned from Chairman Greenspan over the last 18 years about the theory and the practice of monetary policy. The Lessons of the Greenspan era, lessons having to do with expectations and the importance of consistent behavior, are now widely understood, both in the central banking and academic worlds. Academics may debate whether Greenspan era policy is an example of discretion or rules, but no one in that debate really argues that the Fed's recent success proves the virtue of pure, unconstrained discretion. That discretion must be tempered by constraints linked to expectations, reputation, and commitments is a lesson that I think has been widely learned. And that's what gives me great confidence in the continuity of monetary policy. Thank you very much.